Hello and welcome to The Methods Cafe, a podcast series focusing on social legal research brought to you by researchers at Swansea University plus guests. My name is Sarah Kuchaya. I'm a lecturer in cyber threats at Swansea University's Hillary Rodham Clinton School of Law. And I'm Yvonne McDermott Rees, a professor of law, also at Swansea's Hillary Rodham Clinton School of Law. This podcast is aimed primarily at our master's level students, although we welcome all listeners, and will bring you discussion on many aspects of socio-legal research, including research design, methods of data collection and analysis, ethics, communicating research results, and securing funding for your project. So welcome to episode four of the Methods uh, Cafe podcast. So in this episode, we are lucky, very lucky to be joined by Dr. Rick Lines. Rick is an Associate Professor of Criminology and Human Rights here at Swansea University and researches and teaches in subjects including international drug control law, business rights, HIV and human rights, uh, capital punishment and harm reduction. So welcome, Rick. Welcome. Hello, both. How are you? Um, lovely to have you with us. Nice to be here. Thank you. So, Rick, we were particularly keen to invite you to the Methods Cafe in light of your recent article on new psychoactive substances in Eurasia, a qualitative study of people who use drugs and harm reduction services in six countries. So could you tell us a wee bit about um, the methodology you used for this article? Sure. I mean, this study was one that uh, evolved over the course of a couple of years in several stages. We've actually done eight countries now at this point, although um, we've only published six. And I guess it's interesting for a couple of reasons. One is that it was done in partnership with a non-governmental organization in Lithuania called the Eurasian Harm Reduction Association, which is an umbrella NGO of members across um, Central and Eastern Europe and Central Asia, an organization I've worked with for a long time. So it was very much a, a partnership and the whole idea for the project developed out of my relationship with that organization. And we can maybe talk a bit about that process later on, because I think it's interesting. In terms of the research itself, I mean, we use sort of a, a mixed methodology. The sort of objectives of the research was to look at new psychoactive substance use and related harms in the countries that we were focused on. We started with two countries, which were Belarus and Moldova. And as we got more funding, um, we expanded it beyond those two. Um, but it was basically to fill the gaps. Um, we had sort of anecdotal reports from the partner organizations um, working in those countries that new psychoactive substances were becoming a bigger part of the illicit market, were kind of taking over the market in many cases from more traditional illicit drugs, you know, such as sort of cannabis or heroin, uh, and that there were different, I guess, risks related to the use of those drugs. Um, there wasn't really much monitoring going on. Uh, and certainly um, for people who use drugs, that created issues about accessing services or getting information about safer use for harm reduction services and drug services that created challenges because they didn't really know how to respond because uh, the nature of the use might be different uh, or the kind of psychoactive effects might be different. So we went to try to initially fill some of those gaps. So we sort of a mixed methodology, part of which was very much desk-based data review and trying to access as much existing data as we could 
from various sources, from, you know, European regional groups, such as the European Monitoring Center on Drugs and Drug Addiction, or the UN Office on Drugs and Crime, various types of organizations like that, um, looking at what available data we could get access to at country level, whether that might be peer-reviewed research that might be done, it might be health-based research information on ambulance call-outs, information on uh, law enforcement, this type of thing, to try to get uh, as much information as we could prior to doing kind of our interviews. And then also looking at the legal frameworks around the drugs in different countries. Uh, so that was sort of the underpinning desk-based stuff. And then I guess the core part of the research was the actual interviews, where I think over the course of the eight countries now, we've interviewed getting close to 200 people who use drugs, I think, across those countries. And over 60 or 70, I think, health and drug service providers. So we wanted to capture kind of the lived experience of people who use drugs, um, looking at not just about the nature of the types of drugs being used, but also some of the, the factors around the market, how they were being sold, how they were being purchased. We found some very interesting things about use of the dark net and other things, how the drug markets themselves were being influenced by these. And then, of course, talk about kind of health-related harms and risks. And so that, again, that happened as a mix of sort of focus groups or individual interviews with both people who use drugs and people providing health and harm reduction services. So those are kind of the two aspects, I suppose, the desk-based and the actual fieldwork. Of course, this project kind of happened a large part of it in the middle of the pandemic. So the first couple of countries, Belarus and Moldova, were done more face-to-face, -face, focus groups, this sort of things. Uh, we had research, a researcher in the country assisting us. Uh, but as the lockdown progressed, more and more of it was obviously done sort of online and via Zoom. But it was a, mix, a mixed methodology of you know, using that desk-based research to try to inform what we knew and identify some of the gaps that we might want to look at from actually talking to uh, the people who are using new psychoactive substances and the people who are working kind of professionally in drug services. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And I think it, for our students, it, it, it may be worth noting just how much work goes into that preliminary stage of gathering all of the information, as you're describing, that, that may be relevant and, and sort of using all of that to, to really find those that niche that your research is going to, to be placed in, you know, to, to develop those research questions in a way that, that really matches what those gaps that you're identifying in the literature, but also in terms of the practitioners on the ground. And I think, you know, often the difficulty that students and the, the challenge that students have when they're doing a master's program and even a PhD program is that really you have to do quite a lot of background work before you arrive at that specific topic and specific research questions you're trying to answer. So I think you've, you've really highlighted that <laughs> uh, to, to us here. Yeah, yeah. No, okay, absolutely. That, and that's always one of the challenges. And it's something for people who are taking on a research project, a dissertation, I mean, you shouldn't underestimate the amount of time that might take. And that's really going to vary based upon the subject you're writing about, because, you know, some topics, there's going to be volumes and volumes of existing research going back decades. And for some things that are maybe more contemporary, more cutting edge, there might be very little. And each of those situations creates their challenges and their opportunities. But yeah, it's a good thing to keep that in mind as you're going forward. And I say, we've really benefited from the collaboration with the Eurasian Harm Reduction Association, and particularly my, my co 
researcher, Eliza Kursevich, who really led on the country-based work uh, as a brilliant researcher. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Related to that point about your, your research partners, I'm really interested to, to hear more about that, the sort of the co-production with a research partner in the local country. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, to me, this is one of the most important points of the research, because I mean, I come into academia having had most of my career working in non-governmental organizations. And I don't know if it's a topic of wide appreciation within academia, but it certainly is within NGOs, which is the degree to which academics exploit NGOs. <laughs> um, and I've been on the receiving end of this myself. I've seen it from others. And typically what tends to happen all too often is you, know, you have these small NGOs, often underfunded, but filled with people who are incredibly passionate about their work, um, really passionate about the people using their services and doing whatever they can to try to get a bigger audience for the issues that drive them. And so you, know, you get an email or you get a phone call or a visit from Professor so-and-so from this esteemed university who validates the work you're doing. It's really important. We'd really love to help you. We'd really love to write about this. And what happens all too often is that the academics kind of leech off the NGOs. So come in, take over. Then the NGOs in good faith will give over their time, you know, have staff take on extra work, turn over all their information, maybe facilitate access to clients or to partners or to other people. And then all too, all too often the academics take that away and you never hear from them again until something's published. And all of a sudden then, you know, a lot of times, you know, there's kind of very little information or very little credit given to the NGO who was actually really the basis of the work. There's certainly no co-authorship. In fact, co-authorship is often frowned upon because, you know, the NGOs are seen as advocates, not objective researchers, even though the research would have been impossible without them. So, I mean, I was very wary of all this going in. Now, what the worst thing about it is that the NGOs actually kind of lose what you might call ownership of the research, because all of a sudden the academics who you gave all the information to are flying all over the world, speaking at conferences about the work you're doing, right? So, I mean, this is a, a large point of discussion and I guess common experience for a lot of NGOs, particularly people working in the drug sector, or the HIV sector, which is what I came out of. And so I'm very sensitive to that. Uh, and I don't want to replicate that in my own work. At the same time, NGOs are really interested in research. And this is part of my interest in coming into academia because I know from the NGOs I used to work in, like we are madly interested in doing good quality academic research, but we often don't have the skills, we don't have the time, we don't have the access to research funding um, that's required to do that. So partnerships are really good, but they've got to be done properly and respectfully. So, I mean, this piece of research evolved very much out of my relationship with the Eurasian Harm Reduction Association. Uh, I sit as a member of their international advisory committee. And a, a couple of years ago, we were producing their new strategic plan. And we had a meeting in Ukraine at the time, um, going over their strategic plan for the coming five years. And as part of that, they had identified a number of emerging areas that they were interested in, that they saw were going to be issues that they were going to need to respond to as an organization in terms of emerging changes in the drug market or emerging concerns. Uh, and so, you know, I sat down with Elisa, their head researcher, and Anna, their executive director, and said, let's talk through them and see if we can't put a bit of research together. So 
it was important for me that it was very much from the beginning driven by what their needs were. And so I was coming to that. How do I help you, you know, fill a gap and create information that is going to benefit, you know, your response to drug related harms in the region. So that part was very important that it was like the initial idea was driven by them. And then I could go away and try to find funding for it and we could put together a proposal. So that was very important. So it was very much a partnership from the beginning, very much, you know, a co-authorship from the beginning on any, like any academic outputs that came from, but it was also very much linked to their, again, their strategic plan. So the research that we produced, they were very much going to use on the one hand at country-based level to inform inform services and advocacy in those countries, um, which they produced a series of reports in both English and Russian in all those countries that could be used by local advocates. And at the same time, you know, I'm obviously using it uh, with Elisa to publish journal articles and speak at conferences. So we had kind of two parallel streams of outputs, one that was very much geared at the service delivery policy advocacy objectives that they had as an NGO. And then, but also we had complementary ones in terms of publishing the academic literature. A really important part of it from my point of view was to get funding to fund their staff because I think it's really, again, what often happens when academics come into NGOs is they expect the NGOs to drop everything and essentially work as unpaid research assistants or unpaid research help. So it was really important to me that as part of the the grants that I attracted, part of that was a direct financial transfer to the NGO to fund, you know, so many days a week of Elisa's time over the course of 12 months or whatever it was to collaborate with me. So it's not taking away from their existing work, it actually is adding additional benefits to them and additional staff resources. Um, So that was all very important. And then the other part, of course, was the way we got access to people who use drugs and service providers in those countries was through the network, you know, their, their umbrella network. And so it was also very important that the local organizations who were assisting us kind of had some ownership of the process and could see that their involvement was going to have some benefit to their either improving their services or filling information gaps or providing a tool for policy advocacy or law reform advocacy, which is why the, on the one hand, the country-based reports were important, uh, but also what the Eurasian Harm Reduction Association has done subsequently is done a series of in-country trainings, webinars, these types of things with people in those countries, both kind of NGO workers, people who use drugs, advocates, policymakers about the findings to try to, again, spread and disseminate the research, but also ensure that it has some kind of impact on, on the ground. So again, it was an interesting and rewarding piece of research for me in that regard is it wasn't exploitive. Again, it was very much driven by the NGO. I was coming in to add value rather than to suck up their information. And the outputs were very much driven as NGO outputs. And then we could have some kind of more academic ones piled on the back of them. But the primary ones were very much about the country-based work, the webinars, um, the trainings, and this type of thing, and actually developing harm reduction tools, which is the other thing that's come out of it, which wasn't originally part of the design, but Eurasian Harm Reduction Association has used some of the information we've gathered from that to start developing kind of safer use pamphlets and educational materials for people who use new psychoactive substances around overdose prevention and other things. So 
again, it had a lot of interesting outputs. It wasn't just driven by academic outputs. It has really multifaceted kind of outputs. And again, I think the fact that we expanded and continued that process over three separate phases of the grant <laughs> was a, a demonstration of the, the benefits of that, that collaboration. Yeah, it sounds absolutely fantastic. And of course, everything that was published was explicitly a joint publication with, with them. So Eurasian Harm Reduction Associates is very much front and center. And Elisa Krasevich is, you know, lead author of our peer-reviewed journal articles because she was so integral to the work being done. Yeah, yeah. And you're picking up on an element of ethics, which is, like you say, not often articulated and, and spoken about, but it is about conducting research ethically, really, you know, to ensure that there are benefits to those people who uh, participate and who, and who you know, put time and effort into helping research. Uh, yeah, no, it's absolutely, it, it's absolutely the case. And I say I'm sort of very sensitive to that coming from the background I have and having been on the receiving end of that kind of exploitation in the past. But it's important to find ways around that because partnerships between academics and advocates and NGOs is really powerful because like, particularly in my area and sort of areas of harm reduction, drug services, you know, it's the, it's the organizations on the ground, the organizations of people who use drugs who are really seeing the emerging issues, seeing the changes in the drug markets, seeing developing the innovative health-based responses and programs, you know, so you want to collaborate with them. And of course, they're generally interested in broader policy and legal change. And often to accomplish that, having alliances um, with people working in, in research or academics who can provide the kind of you know, peer-reviewed research that can have a bit more influence, perhaps with policymakers, there is a real benefit there. So, I mean, it's certainly we shouldn't shy away from those collaborations at all, but it really is to recognize you know, the community organizations as the experts, really. And we as academics coming in to provide some added value to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to try yeah. to find where 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 we can work together to you know maximize both of what we bring to that because those partnerships you know are really really important and can have a lot of benefit for broader kind of policy change and and change in practice. Yeah. Um, so related to some of what you were uh, talking about, actually, quite a lot of things we could we could talk about there. But um, uh, one question which may be interesting for for our listeners is around the comparative aspect of the research and your selection of the countries that you've chosen to focus on. We, we have talked about in our classes, uh, you know, uh, uh, sampling in terms, we've talked about sampling in terms of sampling a context, you know, and then sampling participants if you're actually collecting data in that way. But how, how do you decide on that context and those countries? Uh, well, again, that was very much driven by the Eurasian Harm Reduction Association. And it was a a combination of a number of factors. I mean, Eurasia itself is a massive geographic region, I think 40 or 50 countries. You know, it's a huge region of the world. Um, but within that, there are different subregions. You've got sort of Central Asia, you've got the Caucasus, you've got Southeastern Europe, you know, sort of the Baltic states. Um, so there was a desire to try to, you know, even though we know we could only do well, two originally, but eventually eight, you know, we could never do 20 or 30 countries. So we tried to pick representation from as many of those regions as we could. So that was part of it, you know, to try to have one country essentially in as many subregions as possible. And then the other part was linked to their own, their own networks. So where did they have strong partnerships? 
where were there kind of active and engaged organizations of people who use drugs? Um, where were they getting anecdotal reports from their membership of new psychoactive substances taking on a bigger part of the market? Um, so it was very much driven by that. On the one hand, wanting to have as much kind of diverse, you know, geographically, culturally diverse countries as possible, but also ones that there was indicated where we'd have strong partner organizations to collaborate with and some at least anecdotal reports of need to do that. And Rick, your your most recent article, which I'm a big fan of, um, that was published in the Human Rights Law Review, looks at this idea of um, detention for drug treatment through the lens of human rights law. So it's, it's quite different in approach, isn't it, from this other research you've done on, on new psychoactive substances in Eurasia. So um, yeah, any insights on that, on how that doctrinal legal research method compares with more empirical or mixed methods approach from a research and writing perspective? Yeah, a very, very different thing. I mean, if I'm being honest, I mean, I actually, as a researcher, I much prefer doing doctrinal research. And maybe that speaks to kind of, you know, some, (laughs) I don't know, some part of my personality where I like being in archives. But I think to me, doing that doctrinal research, particularly in international law, I just find a different kind of buzz I get out of it. I think part of it is because I just generally, as a layperson, I've always been interested in history and political history. And, you know, looking at the drafting debates around international legal instruments or the evolution of different international bodies, you know, it's really just another source of history. You can learn a lot from about international power relationships and Cold War tensions and the rise and fall of influence of different states within that, that kind of a macro level. And then within, I guess, a subject-related level, for me, if I'm looking at the evolution of drug policy, I can see how discourse evolves or doesn't evolve over time, which is really interesting. So I like, it speaks to that kind of historical interest I have. And then there also does something, there is something a bit, and you'll appreciate this, Yvonne, I'm sure it's like, there's a bit of a kind of like a treasure hunt involved almost when you're doing doctrinal research. So something just really exciting and you get, you, you get a buzz out of like discovering a document or a meeting report that no one else has ever written about before, but is maybe really interesting or searching for a year to try to find one particular document that you've seen referred to in all these other UN reports and you know must exist somewhere, but no one has it. So there is a big a bit of like, you know, scavenger hunt like that. But also I think, so there's that kind of geeky aspect to it. And I think it's fun. And like, you know, I like reading reports of meetings that probably no one's ever looked at before. But from a policy advocacy side, it's also interesting because you do get an insight to how international mechanisms operate or don't operate. You know, I remember when I was doing my, my PhD research and I was looking at all of the sessions of the UN Commission on Narcotic Drugs going back to the 1950s, which is the, the UN's policymaking body on drug policy, 53 member states. And I used to attend those meetings in my job, my old job. You know, I'd go to Vienna every year, I'd sit for a week and watch the proceedings. And then I'm going back and looking at the records of those meetings from the 50s and 60s. And it's like, I swear I've been at this meeting. It's like the same countries having the same arguments around essentially the same topics, you know? So it's it's interesting. It just informs your understanding of how slow or quickly, depending on the topic, kind of global discourse or thinking can change. But yeah. So I mean, and I guess the other thing about doctrinal research is you can obviously do it much more on your own. So it is sort of a much different thing than trying to put together a, 
uh, a broader kind of fieldwork, you know, quantitative project like the uh, like the new psychoactive substances one. But I guess it's interesting because I mean my work kind of sits between social sciences and international law, and I think the doctrinal research is something that has a lot more legitimacy, I think, in the international law and the legal side of scholarship than it might do in the social sciences, um, for example. So I guess I do a bit of both, but personally, I find the doctrinal stuff much more rewarding. Personally, I find it much more exciting, even though it's probably a much more solitary experience. We have one one last question for you. We've talked a lot about your, you know, your relationship with stakeholders on the ground when you're doing your your research and the importance of that. And of course, you've worked for um, NGOs for many many years before returning to academia. So, um, what would be your top tips for researchers starting out if they want to make sure that their research findings translate into law and policy. Um, well, I guess I could speak more from the the NGO side. And I guess when I sort of started doing much more formal research for NGOs, I think one of the things that's really important is to understand that NGO research does not have to be any less rigorous than peer-reviewed research. Uh, and again, academics, we often think, oh, that we call it gray literature, right? We have a term for it that's kind of dismissive and patronizing. Uh, oh, that's just the gray literature. But you know, certainly when you know I was running my NGO in London, an international harm reduction NGO, the stuff that we put out was as rigorously peer-reviewed as anything you would get in a journal. Like we had everything we published, we did through external peer review. We had our own peer review process where we sent it to experts around the world to review it, give us feedback. Again, there is this assumption, I think on both sides, that there's an assumption often from academia that NGO research is substandard, which isn't necessarily the case. But I also think sometimes there can be, from an NGO perspective, sometimes an assumption that we don't have to be that rigorous because we're not academic. And I think, no, NGO research can and should be as rigorous as anything because, again, you're trying to influence people. And again, I remember when I sort of set up sort of the policy um, research section of my old NGO. I mean, we used to, which was unheard of at the time for our sector, like we used to publish reports that would have two, three, 400 footnotes in, <laughs> you know, and like people used to laugh at us originally, you know, and sort of say, oh, they've become very academic. And it's like, well, no, we're not writing in an academic tone. Like you can be rigorous without being alienated. You can be rigorous without adopting kind of a, an academic journal style of writing. It just means you're writing in an accessible way, but you're referencing and backing up your analysis. So I think it's important for people doing that to recognize that you know the more authoritative your work is, the more convincing it's going to be. And the other thing I really learned, which again can be a difficult thing if you're an academic or working in an NGO advocacy, but particularly if you're focusing on policy change, it's really valuable not to overstate the case for what you can prove. And again, the example I use for this is when we set up and did the original work on the death penalty for drug offenses back in 2007. And we set up the death penalty for drugs project at our NGO, which has now been going for 15 years. And we did, again, we started off with doctrinal research, looking at the death penalty for drugs through international human rights law and what that tells us and what the safeguards are and what the limitations. And essentially asking the question, you know, is it a violation of international law to execute someone for a drug offense? which we concluded, yes, there's fairly strong evidence of that, even stronger now than there was at the time. But we heard from a number of diplomats, you know, because we also, 
she said we also kind of pulled back like we didn't overstate the case where the where the evidence and the weight of legal opinion was strong we pushed on it where it wasn't as strong you know we didn't try to make it say something that it didn't and we had any number of diplomats at un meetings tell us that that actually really added to the credibility of our report you know to sort of be very honest about where we could make strong definitive statements about what the legal consensus was and also being clear about where it's not strong but we'd like it to go in that way but not try to pretend that the legal authorities are actually saying exactly what we want to say it doesn't mean you can't recommend they should go in that direction it doesn't mean you can't advocate for that but i think it doesn't do you any favors to kind of overstate the strength of any particular argument because if you do and you're found out it undermines everything you do and from an ngo perspective i always used to say it's like you're only as credible as your last report you've published you know if you put out one rubbish report it all of a sudden will undermine everything you've done before that so i mean that's sort of general things i've learned i mean the bigger question i always point out these days is which is i mean has changed dramatically even in the 4 years since i left the ngo world is i mean kind of ngo advocacy by its very nature and not just ngo advocacy like academic policy advocacy is based upon the idea that policy is evidence based and that if we can provide strong evidence base if we can provide strong human rights guidance and rationales and arguments that that is automatically going to be adopted by policymakers because there has been an assumption and maybe it wasn't always naive but um but our assumption is that this is what we have you know we can try to advance our causes by providing good evidence based solutions to global problems and increasingly it seems like the world's not going in that direction <laughs> right you know or if we don't like your evidence we're going to come up with our own evidence and it's going to get spread over you know i mean i've done my own research so i don't care about your research <laughs> you know so i mean that's the kind of i guess bigger question to me which i don't have an answer to is how we continue to make that kind of evidence based policy work and human rights based policy work relevant in a political environment which is increasingly detached from that in many countries right and i don't know Yeah, yeah. It's not really a methodology question, but it's more uh No, but it's in, and I think like some of the the constituents if you want or like the the people to whom your research speaks or or like about whose experience your research speaks are some of those who are most demonized in society, drug users, prisoners. So I think it's um that's a really interesting insight about the whole information ecosystem and what that means for just translating our research into solid policy reforms. Yeah, and again it speaks to I mean for anyone who's doing research and trying to advocate for policy change and human rights based policy in the context of stigmatized or vulnerable populations. I mean we see the kind of the current political moment entrenching a lot of that stigma and discrimination. I mean certainly in the context of people who use drugs, I mean if we look at a lot of the kind of authoritarian leadership that's emerged over the around the world in the last 5 to 10 years you know from sort of Donald Trump to Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines to Bolsonaro in Brazil to Orban in Hungary you know, they're all talking anti-drug user stuff they're all they're all re-stigmatizing drug users um and really ramping up the war on drugs kind of thing as a way to burnish their kind of authoritarian credentials that was one of the rationales of many that trump threw up around the border wall right is we're going to keep those mexican drug dealers out and this sort of thing um yeah so i mean that's been kind of again more from a policy side it's we're sort of at an interesting 
moment where some parts of the world are actually getting much, much more progressive around drug policy. And we're seeing, you know, obviously expansions in legally regulated cannabis, recreational cannabis in some parts of the world. We're seeing moves towards decriminalizing possession for people who use drugs. So in some instances, we see much more open discussions about drug policy reform. And then on the other, we see, you know, certain parts of the world, like a doubling down of that really abusive and repressive kind of war on drugs stuff and using people who use drugs as a, as a tool to essentially assert authoritarian control. Again, not really a methodology question, but uh, more a question about where we are, I suppose. Yeah. At the same time, you know, I, I, I guess as researchers, you know, students who are thinking of going into research, you know, I suppose all we can do is, is do our bit to collect that evidence and to put that together and to do our best to put that across and hope that in the context of certainly within a, a democratic context, that should be a tool to hold power accountable, oh, yeah, <laughs> um, absolutely. even if they don't want to listen, you know. <laughs> no, no, I, I certainly not. Adv- I certainly wouldn't suggest we don't do it because we have to. Um, because it is still important. And in many, any issues, it's like that sort of research is life and death that makes a difference between life and death. And, you know, in many policy areas, I suppose that maybe are less ideologically combative, you can see that kind of evidence-based research does have an impact. So perhaps it's only some, it's only a matter of some of the most politically charged ones that we see, whether that's kind of around climate change or crime, of course, is always um, but I say, but even in crime, I mean, you get we do see evidence-based work on law reform does have an impact. So uh, again, it's more just a question about how we use research, and well, not whether or not we do it, but how we use it and how we sort of be, be prepared to defend it. I suppose in that way as well. Amazing discussion. I think we have probably raised a lot more questions than we have uh, asked and answered, <laughs> as always. But I think this is this is it from us at the Methods Cafe. Thank you, Rick, so much again for joining us. Thank you for inviting uh, me. It was great fun. Thanks, Rick. I'd say if any of your students want to do research on drugs, drop me an email. Amazing. So once again, I hope everyone who's listening has enjoyed this episode. And if you can, leave us a review, share with your colleagues. And yeah, we look forward to seeing you again in the next episode. Bye. Bye. <laughs> thanks, guys. Can I pause one second? I think the dog is eating my mail. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm Yvonne McDermott-Reese, a professor of law also at the... uh, Sorry, Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) Should we do that from the top? (laughs) Or do you want to just go from my name is Sarah? Hope those are right.